Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And this week, Marianne will be speaking with Tyler Whitley, who is the director of Transformation, which is a project of Mercy for Animals. This is such an important topic. It's like, you know, how to get farmers out of animal farming and into growing real food. This is something that we have been, you know, talking about for a while, and yet we have not done nearly enough interviews on this subject. I know. I've been wanting to do an interview for a long time, and somehow it just never came together. I'm really excited about it. Yeah, so so am I. And uh, so thank you so much for making that happen. I just think there's so many questions to be to be explored in in making animals and making making the care of animals a public policy issue. And sometimes it leads us into things you know, that we don't love, like helping people who are who are now mistreating animals. But as we'll see from this, a lot of them are being mistreated as well. You get into public policy and it's not as pure as as animal rights theory, but it, it's what we've got to do in order to change the world. So this is so important. I mean, people are not going to just stop farming animals, but if they can see that they can really make money and grow food that we all want, it's such an important step in the right direction, I think. Speaking of where we're going in the future, there were a few articles that you pulled out that we wanted to chat about today, and they're totally bananas. You know, I do rising anxieties at the end of the show normally. And this week, I kind of wanted to try the way we used to do it, which is like more together. Mm-hmm. I just thought it would be good to try. And and so that's what we're going to do. And I'm going to do it at the top of the show instead of at the end of the show. So if this is a part of the show that you hate, feel free to fast forward. But I want to talk about, and and for you, those of you who aren't familiar with Rising Anxieties, which I guess are those of you who like always turn the, the episode off at the end of the interview and don't wait to hear me at the end. <laughs> I don't know what you're all thinking. But anyway, I'll explain sort of. These articles usually fit into is articles either from the meat industry or about the meat industry demonstrating how worried they are about the about us about the change in their in in what they're going to have to be doing and about the information getting out about about what it is that they do and you know so often we read stuff from our side of the fence which is telling you about how worried we are and that just makes us worried but I like thinking about how worried the industry is, or at least reading about the things that concern them or the things that they're doing to try to counter the the, the idea that they're animal rights activists and, and other people as well on other issues out there who think what they're doing is not that great. So I thought I would start with this, this in case you're all wondering where you should go on vacation this year, <laughs> there's an on-farm Ohio museum and according to this article, which is from Ag Daily, it brings guests closer to their dairy. This is by one Elizabeth Maslin. There's this horrible, horrible picture of this horrible, horrible, huge, huge warehouse. And it says, MVP Dairy Learning Center, come see our cows. Isn't it in the middle of this barren field? Isn't that just where you want to go on vacation? I'm so confused. Like, I know that I'm pretty far removed from this, but are there actually people? who would be like, where should we go this year with the kids? Disney World or MVP Dairy? Like, I don't, this makes no sense to me that this is actually a thing. Is this actually a thing? Welcomes an average of 10,000 people each year. Come on. Uh-huh. It's a real, it's a thing. This isn't the only one out there. This is a thing. Wow. Yeah, no, they think, they they want people to think that they're cute. It's so weird because 
it's both getting people to think that what they do is nice, but also they don't show what literally happens in every, you know, it's kind of, it's cleaned up, but it's still extremely brutal and abusive. And I think it's, they're trying to enculturate people to think that this is the way you treat animals. So anyway, according to this article, starts off, have you ever heard of a dairy farm museum? Well, if you head out to the Dairy Learning Center at MVP Dairy in Salina, Ohio, you will find a museum right on the farm. Oh my God. Um, it mentions that it's own, the, this dairy is owned and operated by multiple families. Uh, of course, that means, you know, as usual, they will call it a family farm because the people who own it have families, you know, just like everybody else on the planet. That's their idea of a family farm is if, uh, you know, people have families just like the rest of us, but they love that term family farm. They have this on-site dairy learning center and they have this little picture of kids looking at create healthy soil. I wonder, you know, I can't really read it, but it probably has something to do with, you know, how they like to add manure to the soil. I can't, I'm sure it does because they're talking about healthy bacteria and et cetera, et cetera. They mentioned that the Dairy Learning Center is a nonprofit that's on this farm, which is a for-profit corporation, and it's promoting this farm and they call it a nonprofit and, you know, don't have to pay taxes. Like, okay. We worry about our nonprofit status. They should, they're the ones who are really, <laughs> I don't even understand how you get away with that. They do public tours. They do school tours. They're very popular. And this is the, the, the way they deal with the cows. They have, I don't know whether you've ever seen one of these things, but they have this 80 stall carousel parlor. They call them parlors. You know, that's the traditional language which Ryan notes is a fan favorite. And it's all of these cows in these tiny little slots in this in this round uh, circular facility that goes around and, and you know, and they, 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 they're all hooked up to machines. And this is the part that I think is really enculturating people. They want people to look at this and say, yeah, this is how cows are supposed to be treated. And, you know, that's what people do because I don't know whether you've ever noticed this, Jasmine, but have you ever noticed that people are fucking stupid um, you know, I have had some, uh, you know, suspicions <laughs> that that's the case. All right. Sorry. I'm sorry. It's true. It's true. They also mentioned that it can be a learning experience. And Ryan recalls the time when a young woman came and she was brimming with questions about sustainability and cow care. She apologized for asking so many questions. We don't mind but she just wanted permission to enjoy dairy products. Wow. She shared she felt guilty consuming dairy products because of things she's heard. We were grateful to be able to provide a space where she could ask us those questions and feel good about enjoying dairy again. They don't say what the questions were or what their answers were. And if she came there and saw this and suddenly felt good, then, you know, just, you know, just one more psychopath. That should be, the, that should be our, our tagline. Just one more psychopath. Our tagline? Well, something for the for this particular segment. Oh, for this segment, sure. I mean, yeah, like there is hope in this, right? Because there, the fact that that has to be even stated. Exactly. That would definitely not have always been the case. So I think this is, you know, an abysmal story, but there's a silver lining in it. I appreciate that for sure. They would, I mean, this is like, you know, a big job for them to have to do this. And they wouldn't be putting all of this together and trying to get people to come there and going through all this bullshit, literally bullshit, unless there were a lot of people like that young lady out there who are, you know, worried uh, and mm. think there's something wrong. So, yeah. 
Yeah. Enough of this. Enough of this. Enough. All right. The center of my plate column on Meeting Place. You know, Meeting Place is one of the places where I get like a lot of articles and it's M-E-A-T, Meeting Place. Get it? Uh-huh. Pour yourself a glass of wine, put your feet up and read this. All right. So this is called Knives Out. She's not the worst of the worst. And actually, this is an interesting article. I'm not sure it's exactly rising anxieties. She's worried about, she wants to see, as I'll do a lot of people in the meat industry, she wants to see companies who are in the meat industry go into the other side, the alt meats, whether the plant-based or the, uh, she wants everybody in the meat industry to make money. Mm-hmm. Um, and she doesn't, they don't really care how, they just want to make money. And of course, there are other people who don't agree with that. Kind of depends on what you do in the meat industry. You know, if you're just a journalist, of course, you could make money no matter how they're making money. If you if you raise cows, it's hard to make money from plant-based meats. She's trying to cut away at the exaggerated claims and criticisms on both sides, both on the vegan side and on the, the people who think that that these new meats have no role in the world. This is what she quotes as the Instagram post from the from the meat eaters. This is somebody obviously encouraging somebody to eat meat. Also, eating red meat triggers pedophiles and soy boy leftists. She's talking, we really don't need to have this kind of, you know, rhetoric out there. And then she, she points out that the vegans are just as bad. And this is the kind of thing that they say. Decrying the data on livestock slaughter, they say it is causing both animal cruelty as well as environmental destruction. We have so many plant-based alternatives today. Everyone needs to go vegan. Like, in what way are those two comments equivalent in tone? Like, it just shows that the vegans have, like, actual facts and thoughtful comments to make. And the people on the other side just want to uh, trigger soy boy leftists. What, you know, and by the way, soy boy soy products are excellent. They're a local Rochester company. Yeah, it, you know, so I hope that somehow the fact that people are using soy boy as a pejorative term frequently in the far right communities to describe people who are like men in particular per- perceived to be lacking masculine traits. I hope that somehow that is increasing traffic going to soy boy tofu because <laughs> Excellent I'm point. <laughs> I hope that that's the case. Cause by the way, this soy boy thing, it's like, it, it's really abysmal. I mean, it's, it's, pejorative in so many different ways. It's anti-feminist. It's it's actually untrue because um, obviously soy has nothing to do with quote-unquote man boobs or whatever. Not that I think that there's anything wrong with man boobs anyway. All right, let's not go there. Well, I'm just saying that like this is a, it's like a really ugly way of pushing vegans into a category of weak and meek. And neither of those things are true. But I think the fact that they're trotting out those ridiculous little things shows that they're really worried about things like the game changers and all of the vegan athletes showing that they yeah. love that that trope. That it, and and it, it's just like violates all of the evidence. All right. So this article goes on to point out that she thinks that multiple sources of protein are necessary and that plant-based proteins will continue to grow slowly in popularity in developed countries. You know, you don't hear that from our side, really. Everybody on our side is hysterical. She thinks they're going to grow. 
But she also thinks developing regions increasingly embrace the animal proteins that become relatively affordable. You know, that's nonsense. That doesn't even make any sense. Mm-hmm. She points out that all of the big guys or gals, I don't know whether meat companies should be characterized by gender, but but whatever. JBS has actually really, uh, which is the huge Brazilian company, I think it might be the biggest meat company in the world. They have announced that they're stepping into the cultivated meat sector. Mm -hmm. Uh, Cargill says doesn't blow its trumpet quite so loudly, but they're deeply invested in both types of alternative meats. And, And also, you know, Hormel, they're, they're all getting into it because they all want to make money. So doesn't that make you feel better in a way? In a way, it does, for sure. I mean, you've got to take it where you can, right? Like, yeah, I think so. Her final point is that ultimately these two sectors are going to need each other. No way. The only thing we're going to need from the meat industry is to step out of the way while we take over. That's my opinion. Look at you being positive. <laughs> well, I said that's what we need. Our final article is from Sentient Media, you know, our favorites over at Sentient Media. And this is about, well, it's actually about two bills, one of which is a sign of rising anxieties and the other is a really cool bill. They're both fighting over milk served in school cafeterias. And I'm sure the milk industry is absolutely hysterical at the idea that schools are not going to be mandated, actually mandated to sell, uh, which they already are and continue to be, to give kids uh, dairy milk, which is nonsensical especially for kids who are lactose intolerant. And so this guy Thompson, who's a Republican from Pennsylvania, and Kim Schreier, a Democrat from from Washington, have penned the whole Milk for Healthy Kids Act of 2023. And what they want to do is mandate the return of whole milk to school menus. Mm. That whole milk, I think, is not now served in school menus. I think it's probably 2% milk. Mm Mm-hmm. So they're they're upset about that. They they want it to be whole milk. Like, in what way does that help anybody? Yeah. So maybe the reason they're introducing that is to counter the fact that this other bill has been introduced. Um, this is called the Addressing Digestive Distress in Stomachs of Our Youth <laughs> Act. And you know that they, they were really looking for the acronym there. And the acronym... Uh, adds up to Add Soy Act. Oh my God. And this is from Troy Carter, a Democrat from Louisiana, and um, Congresswoman Nancy Mace, a Republican from South Carolina. It would require that a dairy milk alternative be made available for students who request it. And they're trying to get it through the Senate, introduce it in the Senate now, and John Fetterman and Cory Booker are supporting it. Um, Or they have actually introduced it. Like, we have to do this. I mean, these poor kids are lactose intolerant. They're being forced. Something like 70% of the world's population suffers from lactose intolerance. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is totally a racial issue. Lactose intolerance is so much more common among non-white people. The only reason that white people can, uh, is pointed out by an activist in this article, the only reason that some people have developed the literal mutation to be able to digest lactose is because Europe was able to domesticate cattle. And of course, the reason that people had to domesticate cattle is because you couldn't grow things all year round because it's cold. Right. And so there was a total aberration and they did it. And the, the only people who survived were the people who could digest this unnatural food. Mm-hmm. And the vast majority of, of Black, Hispanic and Jewish students have lactose intolerance. And Asian and Native American students. I mean, like all of them. Like, it's just crazy. And 
if it weren't for this school milk requirement, the dairy industry, which is already in an unbelievable amount of trouble and dairy consumption goes down all the time, they would be so in so much trouble. It's really amazing to me how the like the backbends that have to be done, you know, in order to rationalize in order to rationalize any of this, like I, I honestly am sort of flabbergasted. Maybe it's, I, I don't even want to get into world events right now, but it's weird that the saltiness you're bringing to this is very calming to me. So if you can continue to do that, I might wind up with high blood pressure from all the salt, but I'll take it. <laughs> I'm not sure even what you mean. You mean my my deeply sarcastic tone? Uh, yeah, like I love it. I'm like addicted to it. I mean. Well, I I just think that rising anxiety is one of the few things that makes me uh, feel better because it does show that they're nervous. Another thing that this article points out, which I I meant to mention, the nutrients that milk is best known for, that people are always saying, you know, you got to drink your milk. I mean, aside from protein, and of course, we all know you can get protein from plenty of places, are vitamins A and D. And they're both in milk because milk is fortified with them. Yeah. You can put vitamin A and D in anything. They just, they, <laughs> like, just think about it. They say kids need vitamin A and D, and so they have to drink their milk. And the reason that the milk has it is because they put vitamin A and D in there. And then there's just a circular thing that because it's in there, that means kids should drink it. That's bananas. It's crazy. It's really, really bananas. I appreciate that you're letting me in on... Rising anxieties. I think I need it. Can we keep doing this? Uh, sure. I, I, I'm happy to have the company. I'm usually like just like yelling out there into the ether, hoping somebody's listening. Uh, well, I'm listening. I think a lot of people are. I mean, you're still the most, you're still the most, uh, you know, lauded segment, this rising anxieties. It's constantly the one that people are bringing up. When we were at Mockingbird Sanctuary the other day, oh, which is a farm animal sanctuary in near near Rochester that we were able to go to, they had a a lovely little event. I was chatting with someone who was a podcast listener, and they were like, "You're fine, but rising anxieties." Wow, come on, you didn't even tell me that. Oh, it's true. I didn't tell you that. No, you did not. Well, I th- I'm glad to tell you now because people are listening and enjoying it. It's so cool that Mockingbird is like. 30 minutes from our house because in addition to your saltiness, it's nice to know that there's some rescued farmed animals nearby. Yeah. Nice to get to visit them. We did have to like pass by some, some animal agricultural facilities on the way. Well, we're in upstate New York. I mean, if you throw a rock, you'll probably hit a dairy cow. So don't throw a rock. Actually, you won't hit a dairy cow because they're all in these huge barns. I mean, it's not like they're out there. So you'd hit if you throw a rock, you'll hit a hit a dairy warehouse. That reminds me of when we lived in New York City, and we would be out for a walk on the you know on on the pier, and we would see these you know people fishing, and you would always start stamping your feet to get the. Well, yeah, that wasn't me being angry. That, I mean, I, I was angry, but it was also to scare the fish away. Yeah, it was yeah. a warning. It was a little warning sign. They were like, "Is that Marianne? <laughs> we better get out of here." Danger lurks. Danger lurks. All right. Well, thankfully, since danger lurks, we've got some really wonderful people as well, including the person who is the guest on our podcast today. So let's get to that interview. Tyler Whitley brings more than a decade of experience in agricultural and financial systems to his role as the director of transformation. 
He earned a master's of public health from Tulane University and interned for the UN Food and Agriculture Organization on a project in Cambodia, helping 7,500 smallholder farmers and served as the manager of a food and farming intervention program in Haiti, and then moved to North Carolina, where he worked for small farmer advocacy before joining Mercy for Animals as the director of the Transformation Project. He will be joining Marianne right after this. Remember when we came to you with the fabulous news that Dr. Bronner's, the ethical personal care company that we all know and totally love, was making chocolate? Well, now we have some even more exciting news to add to that. This fall, Dr. Bronner's is adding three flavors of oat milk chocolate to their magic all-one chocolate line. That makes 10 total flavors of ethically produced vegan chocolate goodness. The new flavors are crunchy hazelnut butter, creamy mocha latte, and golden milk chai. Oh my God, I cannot wait to try all of them, though I personally am most excited about the creamy mocha latte because mocha and I, we go way back. The new oat milk chocolate flavors will be available on the Dr. Bronner's website and at select retailers nationwide beginning October 24th, 2023. These will be absolutely the perfect autumn treat. If you want to learn more about Dr. Bronner's magic all-one chocolate line, head over to drbronner.com. That's www.drbronner.com to find out more about the sourcing, ingredients, and production of the magic all-one chocolate line and try it out for yourself. Welcome to our Hen House, Tyler. Thanks, Marianne. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you because as I was saying before we started recording, this isn't something I know a lot about, and I think probably a lot of our listeners don't know a lot about. Before we get into solutions, I know that we want to talk a lot about the program that you're working on and some of the solutions, but I'd like to talk a little bit about the problem and not the problem from the animal activist's point of view, which I think most of our listeners are pretty familiar with, or from the animal's point of view. But from the farmer's point of view, you tell us about why, totally regardless of the animals, you can make the case that, I guess, poultry production, but not just poultry production, other kinds of animal farming as well, is really a horrible thing for small farmers. Yeah, definitely. So in transformation, we primarily work on industrial animal farming, and that's factory farming. And the reason we do that is because it's really a race to the bottom as far as price, quality environmental impact, everything affected by factory farming. And so from a farmer's perspective, it's that the large international meat companies are looking to produce animal food products at the lowest price possible. And so that means that farmers receive the lowest price possible. And how that affects them is that it makes it very difficult to run a profitable business, to provide for your cost of living, and to ensure that you have a farm that you can pass on to the next generation. Additionally, there's been a great deal of consolidation within the animal protein sector over the last 50 years. So a small number of companies producing most of the beef that people consume, most of the chicken that people consume, most of the dairy products that people consume. And what that means is that there are limited options for farmers. So if you lose a contract raising chickens for a particular company, like Tyson, for example, it may be very difficult 
or impossible for you to find another contract to raise chickens with a different company. These businesses tend to be hyper-localized with very little alternatives for farmers within a particular region. And so that means low prices, very few alternatives, which typically results in very, very low wages and compensation for farmers, as well as all the workers involved in factory farming as well. Can you tell us a little bit about the tournament system? I've heard of this in in the context of poultry production. I think that's where it's primarily used, but correct me if that's wrong. No, that's correct. So the tournament system is a method of incentivizing effort on behalf of farmers. And what that means is that within a particular time period, companies come and pick up chickens from a group of farmers, and those farmers are ranked according to the efficiency of inputs they receive, most prominently feed conversion, how well they convert one pound of feed to one pound of animal weight. And based on that ranking, farmers are awarded a bonus, but the bonus is paid by the other farmers. So if you have 21 farmers, you'll have a midpoint. And for the 10 farmers above whatever that average is during the flock, and the flock is a settlement, the flock settlement, that's all the other farmers who have had their chickens picked up during the same time period as you. Anyways, for everyone above that average during the settlement, they receive a bonus that's paid for from a pay deduction from the bottom. And so think of it like if you're working at any standard hourly wage, you know, in a fast food restaurant or an office space, you know, copyright or whatever, every paycheck you're ranked against your coworkers and you receive a pay deduction that pays a bonus out to your other coworkers. And it's a way of ensuring cost controls while incentivizing work. They sell it to farmers that the harder you work, the better, you know, your chickens will perform, the more weight they'll gain. And yet, because those bonuses are paid with deductions from other farmers, it ensures that the companies can control their costs rather than paying out a true bonus. That's crazy. It really is. I mean, I guess I've read about it before, but I didn't really understand it. So it's guaranteed that half the people will lose. Correct. Yes. That's really charming. Yeah. It's all based on inputs that are outside of your control. The company delivers the chicks to you. The company delivers the feed to you. They deliver everything to you. The only thing that is within your control is your efforts and your labor. And so the company sells it as the harder you work, the better off you'll perform. But as we know, because of the way that these chicks are bred, the way that they're raised, a lot of chicks are delivered sick. They're delivered with diseases that they suffer through and that manifest themselves in how many of them die during the flock period or how much they suffer or how little weight they add on. So most of the actual results of how well a farm performs are really outside of his or her control. I've sort of heard that one of the things that influences why the meat industry, all of the animal food industry, can't improve things, both for the animals, for the farmers, for everything, can't just improve the nightmare that it's become. It's because the margins are so slim that they have to sell really a lot in order to make money because the margins are so slim. They just can't sell for more. I, I mean, this question just occurred to me, but why can't they sell for more? I mean, people want meat. Why do they always have to keep lowering the price? Who are they in competition with? I mean, other than each other. Well, I think it's a false narrative that they really use. The farmers don't own the chickens. Usually within 98% of poultry farming, that occurs in a vertically integrated production system. 
And that means that the company owns everything. So the company owns the chickens. So they're really just beating down the farmers on what they're paying them. But if you look, the meat companies are making billions of dollars every year. And so the idea that the margins are too slim, that really only applies to individual family farmers that raise animals on pasture, usually in very, very small numbers. So case in point, you know, a large pastured poultry operation that is truly pastured where the birds are raised outside, they may raise 6,000 chickens a year, whereas a factory farm may raise 720,000 chickens a year. So the margins for that independent farmer are very, very slim because they're doing a lot more work. They're raising the chickens in a much different way that affords them, while they are alive, a much better quality of life compared to a factory farm chicken. So again, the idea that the margins are really small, that's margins for the farmers and other people, but that's not the case for the multinational meat companies that operate across the globe. I believe you have worked with both poultry farmers and pig farmers. Can you tell us a little bit about the difference between how those industries work when it comes to farmers? Yeah, sure. They're very similar. The majority of industrial scale pig farming are raised on what's known as production contracts. And so again, that's where the company owns the pigs, they deliver you the pigs, you raise the pigs from a certain weight to a market weight, and then there's also marketing contracts. Marketing contracts are slightly different, but the effect is the same. And that's where the farmer does own the pigs, but already has a contract in place for who to sell to. So before they even buy those small piglets, they already know where they're going to sell them to. And so while the mechanism is slightly different, the farmer owning the pigs versus the company owning the pigs, the effect is really the same. At the end of the day, the majority of pigs raised for slaughter and consumption here in the United States are going to a large factory-farmed meat processor. There are a lot of farmers who do things differently, who do raise pigs on pasture, raise pigs outside, afford them a great deal of room to roam around, to root, to look for acorns, root vegetables, things like that. But those farmers tend to sell into niche markets and raise pigs in substantially smaller quantities. We're talking a few hundred versus thousands to tens of thousands. Now, I always tell people who bring up the, the whole humane meat issue that if you're not paying a lot, It's not humane because it costs a lot of money to take good care of animals. That's definitely true. That's a very good rule of thumb. Very good rule of thumb. And and just because you are paying a lot of money doesn't mean it's okay. (laughs) But if you're not, it's definitely not okay. Sure, Um, sure. You don't do any work with dairy farmers, do you? And regardless of that, can you deconstruct a little bit how that industry varies? Because I think that's probably the industry that most people think is still run really concentrated with family farms? Sure. We don't primarily work with dairy farmers, but we have started to work with one or two small family dairy farmers, like what you're talking about. The problem with dairy is that it is very difficult for a small-scale dairy farmer to compete with dairies of scale. And so when you're talking, you know, two to 400 dairy cows versus someone who has 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 dairy cows, It's just impossible to compete with that level of scale. And so as with any business, 
the larger you become, the more that you're able to compete on economies of scale and really pull down your production costs. And when you're talking extremely large-scale dairies, they're better able to spread those costs across the number of animals that they use in production. And then the price that is supported by the dairy margin program is very, very low. So many, many small dairy farmers actually operate at a loss for their dairy farms. And we have started to work with one or two small dairy farmers But again, they're very, very small. And those have been more in an individual case through our grant program that we make. So these farmers, and you know, I'd love you if you could deconstruct the term family farm too, because I think it's one of the most misused terms. Like everybody's got a family. Families can vary a lot. But the people you're working with, and we're going to get to your program in a bit, these are mostly small independent farmers. Can you just talk about how much food are they responsible for? small, independent, really true family farmers, what people think of when they hear the term family farm? Oh, that's going to be difficult for me to do, but I'll try to answer the question about family farm. So most of the people that we work with are factory farmers, but you do hear the term family farmer being used to think of the idyllic, bucolic, pastoral way of raising animals with like a red barn in the background and chickens running around and a family rolling up their sleeves to work in the dirt, harvesting vegetables, things like that. The majority of the food that is produced that people consume that is available for purchase in supermarkets is raised on industrial scales. You can see that in the fact that, you know, 70% of all of our specialty crops, which are our fruit and vegetables, are raised in California. That's the majority of all mushrooms that we consume across the country come from Pennsylvania. Whereas a family farmer really conjures up the idea of a localized food system, someone that is within 100 miles of you. You see it, that term being co-opted by large industrial scale operations and really by the industry because to your point, like you said, Marian, everyone has a family. So even though you may be a factory farmer, according to the USDA census, you're, you're probably still a, a family farmer because the individual family owns this factory farm. It's owned by the Smith family, for example, even though they only raise chickens for a Tyson, a JBS, uh, you know, Sanderson Farms, you know, someone like that, Purdue. And so again, like everyone has a family. Everyone has parents, whether you know them or not, like it's a fact of life, you know? And yeah. so... The idea of family farmer is, as it's used, you have to really look at who's using it. And if it's being used by someone supported by one of the large trade industry groups like the National Pork Producer Council or the National Chicken Council, they're probably using it to try to um, soften the image of factory farming. Yeah, because people are always eager to believe something benign about their food, even though it's usually not true. So... I do want to get to your program, I promise you. But yeah, sure. But as I said, this isn't a subject that I know a lot about. So I have a really lot of background to cover. And I also kind of want to apologize to my listeners for talking about this in such, you know, without sympathy for the animals. The sympathy is there, but we have to get some facts sorted out here. I, I just kind of curious, are companies just the big companies, the Tysons, et cetera, et cetera, are they just moving away from using small contract farmers and to running their own huge warehouse facilities to raise animals. This is just kind of an impression I've gotten that when I see people talking about huge factory farms, 
sometimes they just seem to be owned by the companies. I'm wondering if that's the direction they're moving in. No, quite the opposite. Okay. When you look at the entire value chain in a vertically integrated system, the one place that often loses the most amount of money is the farm. And so those typically are owned by an individual that a company attracts with the offer of stable income. When a company goes into a new area or is trying to sign up a farmer to raise chickens for them, and I'll just talk about chickens because that's what I know the most about, they talk about averages. You know, this is your average pay. This is your average placement. But again, there's a reason that you use averages and says specifics. Because if you use specifics and said, this was what you will make, then they're held accountable to that. Whereas if you say, you know, Marianne, on average, you're going to receive six flocks a year. Well, if you don't receive six flocks, that means that you have received less chickens, which means less money. If we say Marianne, you're going to receive, you know, 30,000 chickens per house. Well, then you're guaranteed to receive that. If you don't, then the company can do what they need to do that's in their best interest. And so at the end of the day, the farmers do have fixed costs. They know they have to make X amount in mortgage payment per year. And so for most factory farms, your annual mortgage payment is in excess of $120,000 a year. That's what you owe to the bank. It's one of the only contractor jobs that I'm aware of where you're an independent contractor paid a fee by a company but your check actually goes to your lender first and then you get whatever's left over. So the farmer doesn't receive the check first, their lender does. And so they receive that what's called an assignment check. And this is actually very typical in agriculture where if you're growing soybeans or corn, you know, the bank may receive your check first to ensure that they get their mortgage payment and pay off their operating costs, things like that. They don't fall behind, but it makes it very, very difficult for a farmer to plan out their life and know that they're going to have enough money to pay all their other operating expenses as well as their cost of living when they don't know what they're going to be paid at the end of the day. And so because the farm typically will be the area that loses money because of how the tournament system works, because of the quality of the chickens, things like that, it tends to be something that most companies try to keep off their books as much as possible and then use other systems like the tournament system in order to control costs for something that they don't own. Wow. The, you know, the more you learn about this industry, the more shocking it becomes. All right. Finally, let's let's talk about your program. Tell us who you approach and what you offer them and what you require of them. Just tell us how it works. Sure. So at Transformation, we actually don't solicit interest. We don't go out there and try to sell the program. We respond to farmers that contact us. And so every farmer enrolled in our program actually reached out to us first. And we do have a waiting list of more than 60 or 70 farmers that have contacted us that we just don't have the capacity to help them right now. And so what we do is when a farmer contacts us, we schedule an initial call to try to understand their needs, to understand where they're at, ask a few questions. If we have value that we can add to their situation, if we can help them out, and they meet some of the basic requirements of our program, like they're a factory farm, for example, instead of a small individual family farm, like what we talked about. Then we'll schedule a follow-up call with them for a needs assessment to better understand like what infrastructure do they have available? What needs do they immediately have that we need to be aware of? Things like that. As far as requirements for the program, outside of being a factory farm that is either poultry 
or industrial uh, swine. And sorry, I say swine because that's the agricultural term, but industrial pig operation. Yeah, no, I I, I get it. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of code switching that happens where you have to, in order to have credibility. You must just have a headache all the time switching uh, codes. Yeah, I mean, well, you want to be taken seriously by the of farmers. Course. Farmers use the word hog. If you're talking to someone in USDA or another, they typically use swine. But we, understanding and having empathy for the animals, we tend to use pig. So, right. you know, I, I just want to be very clear with listeners. Like, there's a reason language is very important. And in order to have credibility in space, you have to, you know, speak the language of the space. Absolutely. Yeah. If we can get to that after you tell us a little bit more how it works, but I'm just completely curious how how suspicious they are of of, yeah. of where you're coming from. But tell us tell us a little bit more about how it works, and then sure. we'll get into that. Definitely. So, like I said, a transformation. Everyone who works with us in our program has contacted us, and so beyond being a factory farmer who's primarily engaged in poultry or swine and identifying value that we can add to their situation. The farmers have to say something that is along the lines of, you know, this system can't be reformed. It has to be replaced. And that's because there's a lot of farmers who like the system as far as like the regularity. They like not having to worry about the marketing aspect of things, you know, going out there, trying to find their own buyers, doing their own advertising, things like this. They just wish they got paid more. And if that's what you're really looking for, that's not really what we do. We want to work with people who recognize that this system is, is actually not broken. It's operating exactly how it was designed to work. And it's working extremely well. It was not designed to be a compassionate system. It was not designed to be a caring system. It was designed to be an extremely profitable system exploitating people, land, and animals for profit. And so the farmers that we work with, they have to say something that indicates that they know the system can't be fixed. It has to be replaced. If that happens, then we schedule a needs call to make sure that we understand everything that they have available. We understand all of their needs, what resources they have, what assets they have. And then we go into make a transition plan for them. And that's where we'll talk to them about what do you want to do? What are you interested in? We'll try to match them with educational resources, self-guided courses that they can enroll in, match them with technical experts. So that might be someone to help them grow a new crop. That might be a business consultant to help them put together a farm business plan. That might be different types of structural engineers or other types of consultants who can help them redesign alternative uses for their infrastructure, repurposing right. their infrastructure. And we pay for all that technical assistance, every bit of it. We've got a couple other program aspects. Like I mentioned grants, we have a research and innovation grant. You can read about that on our website, the ones that we made thus far. Those are small grants that we make to farmers to start pilot operations. So they're typically around ten to $15,000. And that's to start a small operation so that they can eventually scale it to replacing all of the income they had from factory chickens or pig. When you, you say a, a small operation, do you mean like a, a new crop that they might be growing? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that might be like converting a space to grow mushrooms or maybe raising things outside in a high tunnel, or maybe they already have a garden, but they want to do something different like 
create some value-added products like jams or things like that. But it's usually a small operation. And the reason that we encourage them to start small is that this is very, very different from what they've done previously. Yeah. So yeah. not only in the terms of what they're actually raising, but also how they're marketing. You know, previously the company came and yeah. picked up the chickens and sent them a check. And this way they have to find buyers. They need to find restaurants to buy things. They need to find food hubs to buy things. And so it's a very different type of farming. And so we encourage them to start small and then scale up so that they don't have that much invested at the very beginning because, you know, this is a business just like anything else. And the most uh, successful businesses usually do start small and then scale as they have secured customers. Yeah, that makes total sense. I've, I've heard mushrooms mentioned a lot in this context. Is that because they have all these buildings? There's not that many crops that you can grow inside of buildings, are there? It kind of depends. I mean, I think the reason that mushrooms are so often brought up is that they have a high profitability potential. Okay. So you can usually, you know, make a good margin off of it. But when we're working with farmers, you know, and you can read more about all the level of farmer engagement that we have on our website, but some want to take the roofs off their houses and replace it with greenhouse panels and, you know, turn their chicken houses into large greenhouse-like structures. And that allows you to raise crops year round. So there's a lot of different things that you can do because one nice thing, and this is why we work with contract poultry and pig operations right now, is that there's an extreme amount of uniformity within the industry. So all chicken houses are very, very similar to each other. All pig houses are very, very similar to each other. But they're also similar between industries, chicken and pig, very similar. Mm -hmm. And they're designed to be climate controlled environments year round. And that's essentially what crops need to grow as well. You just have to change over things to let more sunlight in. Because as we know, unfortunately, factory raised chickens and pigs don't get right. a lot of sunlight. But if you right. can change over certain parts like your roof and things like that and still keep it as a climate controlled environment that is receiving a great deal of sunlight, then you are able to raise a lot of specialty crops, a lot of fruits and vegetables for year round production. That's really cool. This is really kind of a different question. Because these people are obviously interested in kind of in niche crops. But what if you really wanted to transform the world? What crops would, you know, I drive around and, you know, I live in upstate New York. And, but anywhere I've ever driven in this country, you drive around in rural areas, it's corn and soybeans, soybeans and corn. Soybeans, soybeans and corn. And we know where all of that corn and soybeans are going. They're going to feed crops. What should we be growing in those places, like lentils and beans? Is that what you would want to see growing? Well, I guess we could still grow some soybeans, couldn't we? Yeah, I mean, you can still grow some soybeans. You can still grow some corn. You can definitely grow beans and lentils, things like that. I think that, you know, this is just my personal opinion. A lot of those places I'd actually rather see working on combating climate change and growing cover crops that can revitalize soil and that can store carbon. We would be able to produce the food needs for the human population of this planet on substantially smaller amounts of land. And that would hopefully free up a tremendous amount of land in order to work on capturing carbon and combating climate change. I'd really like to see that as well as restoring biodiversity of a lot of different areas. Oh, so that, that's what I would rather see happen. I love that vision. That's a tough mechanism because you have to have something out there that can finance it. like Yeah, who's going to pay for that? Yeah, yeah who's going to pay for it? What are yeah. farmers going to make income-wise? 
you know, if they're planting cover crops or other native species and they're not harvesting it, who's going to pay for that? There's a lot of good ideas out there and I'd love to see the worst polluters pay for that, but I'm not You're especially... Not in uh, yeah, I'm not in charge <laughs> and I'm bad. not especially hopeful of our U.S. government right now. You yeah. Know, so. I have to tell you, I, you know, I have some questions written out. My next one was how does climate enter into all these decisions about what people should be raising? So you got to my question before I even asked it. I love yeah. that vision. Getting back to your farmers and the people you're working with, do they, what about feed crops? What if, what if they want to get out of raising animals but are, are already or want to continue raising feed crops? Does that leave them out of the equation for you? No, it doesn't. And I think that's because in transformation, we really try to look for ways to do good work and understand that it may not be perfect work. So by that, I mean, there are some farmers who still raise animals, but do so more for their home consumption. Think like backyard chickens and they're mm -hmm. consuming the eggs at home, that kind of thing. For us, we realized that if they get out of factory farming and they still have 50 head of beef cattle or, you know, maybe some backyard chickens, that's not perfect, but that's definitely a lot better than raising 700,000 plus chickens a year. And we realize that everything's a journey, you know? And so right now we want to ensure that we're working with farmers to make the greatest possible impact for animals and that we continue engaging those farmers to keep them on a journey because that's what life is. You continually evolve, you continually learn. And the best thing that we can do is continue engaging those farmers because they'll become advocates for us. They'll talk to people at their church. They'll talk to people in the grocery store. People will come around to their farm to see what they're doing. You know, and so we want to make sure that we're working with them and keeping those lines of communication open. And that's good work. And we can't let perfect be the enemy of good, you know? Yeah, that so. kind of brings us back to that question that I promised we would get back to about, you know, you were talking about code switching and... Is, is there resistance to working with you because you're coming from the direction you're coming from? I think there can be some hesitancy and wanting to ensure that our motivations are genuine. We do run into some issues where sometimes our group transformation being a project of Mercy for Animals is conflated with the larger animal rights movement and some other efforts. And so we have to kind of you know, just have some long conversations and, and build trust and move at the speed of trust. But the nice thing is that showing up regularly, showing up with resources and helping, that does a lot of good on our on our part. That really shows that we are genuine and we work with farmers as long as we're able to add value. So there's some farmers that we've been working with for four years because we can continue to add value to their situation. And if a farmer decides that they want to unenroll from our program, they want to exit, they can always come back to us at another point if they want to. As long as we can add value to the farmer situation, we will continue working with that farmer to make progress in their individual case. And we take all of those learnings, everything that we do with a farmer, and we document it, we create resources that other farmers or other organizations can access, and then they're able to implement them themselves. So if you go on our website, for example, which we just did a redesign of. I think it launched last Friday, actually. Oh, okay. So I actually haven't seen your website. Definitely go and check it out. I didn't know that it, there was a brand new one. I, I think I looked at it earlier than that. Well, that's it. I mean, like 
I've honestly, we've been working on this redesign for about two years. And the reason being, if you go to the site and you look at farmer resources, you'll just see tons of things that we've been working on and trying to get them in a place where we can share them, where we're comfortable enough with them. So you'll see conversion plans. There's conversion plans where we worked with, you know, land grant universities, ag universities like Virginia Tech to put out to guide you through how to convert your chicken farm into a different specialty crop operation and then match that with a price quote. There's information on how to build a specialty mushroom operation depending on different size buildings. And all of this came from our work with individual farmers enrolled in our program. But we take that work like with you, Marianne, the farmer, and then we back it out to make it, you know, something that could be used on like Jasmine's farm or Tyler's farm, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And so we try to do as much as we can to help the individual farmer, but we realize that there's more need than we have capacity to help. And so that's where we take what we've done for the individual farmer and then back it out to make universal resources that other farmers can benefit from. So yeah, I would definitely check it out. Yeah, that's exactly. Also, again, you have anticipated the question I wanted to ask because obviously you can't, and other NGOs who might work on this can't subsidize the entire industry to yeah. transform from animals to plants. So your theory of change is that you will build it with some people. And you even mentioned you can't even address all of the people on your waiting list. So you want to build it with some people and then create resources for people who might want to do it on their own? Yeah, that's correct. We want to document everything that we're doing with current farmers so that then, let's say you marry in, you have an animal farm, you download some of our mushroom information. You have a blueprint on how to set up a business that works with your price point. So like, for example, there's a conversion plan on there for a small 10 by 10 growing operation that might cost you $10,000. You can get a small loan for that, a very small loan and build out. And then you could start that at one building and move over to an entire poultry or pig house, something like that. But we build this out so that you can build a business and go into farm credit, go into the farm service agency, which is the lending agency of the USDA, and you can get a loan to do this. And if you look at some of our, we have our section called crop guys and enterprise budgets, right through some of those enterprise budgets, they're, you know, strawberry production, microgreen production, things like that. They give you a breakdown of what your annual estimated operating costs are. And they also give a sensitivity analysis that shows at what price is this business no longer viable, at what production level is it no longer viable. And then it also gives you what's called a debt service coverage ratio, DSCR. And that is essentially is a, it's a number that says how likely it is that this business can be profitable and service the debt necessary to operate the business. So the higher that number is, the more likely it is that this business can service the debt needs of the business. And so that's really helpful when you're going in and trying to get a loan. Speaking of getting money, I'm used to thinking of the USDA as being the problem, but, you know, obviously it could also be the solution and probably is in, you know, as you just mentioned, in some ways. But in an ideal world, what kind of government assistance should there be? What would you love to see in the Farm Bill? Well, I'll say this. So I think that the current USDA administration is doing a tremendous job compared to the past. Well, that's, that's one way of looking at it. That's a good, a, a good point of comparison. Sorry. Go on. <laughs> I, I think that's what you have to do. I mean, yeah, you have to look course. at 
I tend to think that I'm a better person today than I was at 12 years ago at 25. And that's what I'd strive to be as a better person every day compared to the previous day. No, it's actually really good news to hear that you think there's been that much improvement. Oh, there really has been. There really has been. I understand that there's still uh, a large subsidization of animal agriculture, and most of that is through factory farming. But again, you have to realize, like, we don't have a magic wand and we can't fix everything overnight. But this current administration under Secretary Vilsack, his second time around, is doing a really, really good job at helping independent producers and helping small farmers to be successful. And even if a lot of that money may go into animal agriculture, the more money you can shift away from factory farming to small family farming, the better that's going to be for animals because there's so, so fewer, so, so many less animals being raised for animal agriculture. So I know we may see that and feel discouraged, but again, you're talking about 21,000 pigs versus 200 a year. So it's just the scale of factory farming is so mind boggling that it really, it really doesn't benefit us to conflate it with small family farming because, again, we're talking tens and hundreds of thousands of less animals. Right. So what I would like to see, I'd like to see some reforms to crop insurance. You'll find that crop insurance often comes into play with large commodity crops and most notably that we think about corn and soybean production. So again, that crop insurance really incentivizes corn and soybean production because you're essentially guaranteed a profit when you're raising corn and soybeans. So what that does is it just, you know, artificially deflates the price and makes animal feed substantially cheap, just so, so cheap. I'd rather see more incentivization of the kinds of foods that we should be eating in a healthy diet. So more fruits and vegetables, but also new varieties. You know, if you go to your grocery store, you'll see like yellow neck squash. You'll see one variety of zucchini, maybe like three kinds of oranges. I'd love to see a much more robust and larger fresh produce section with a lot of different types of fruits and vegetables, things that people may go to like a niche grocery store for or their farmer's market for. I think that that's where you're going to see a lot more people swapping over to larger plant-based diets, having family that is not on a plant-based diet, you know, they tend to resonate more readily with whole plants. You know, if it's something they can see, oh, this is butternut squash, this is gay squash, you know, things like that. But there's so many different varieties out there. And I think that that's really what I would love to see is a lot more of that. In addition to what we talked about earlier with combating climate change, I think that, you know, we're at a point now where that probably will be the driving factor into converting more people to a plant-based diet because we have to do it. Our, our agriculture system is having such a tremendously negative impact on our climate. We're going to have to make changes. Well, I, I really hope that you're right, both that we start to do a little bit to save the planet at long last vis-a-vis agriculture, but also the idea that I'm going to go into the supermarket and see a, a huge variety of plants and vegetables and fruits that I haven't seen before. So uh, that is a great way to end uh, on that note of hope. So thank you so much. for uh, This has really been fascinating, Tyler. There's so much about this that I don't know. I'm really looking forward to going back to your website now and really looking in detail about some of these stories because I find this very inspiring. 
Thanks, Mary. And I really appreciate it. And I would also suggest checking out some of our recently launched social media channels, because that's where you'll actually see stories of the farmers and what they're doing and what they're growing. And you'll see more regular updates there as well. I love that. I love that. So th- those are under transformation, not under Mercy for Animals, right? That's correct. Yeah. Well, you can look at transformation or transformation project. I think we're transformation project on Instagram. I'm an Instagram person. So that's the one I know. Okay. And just a reminder to everybody, it's spelled transformation. (laughs) That's correct. Transformation. Yeah. A nice little pun there. Okay. Thank you so much, Tyler. Thank you. Well, that's it for our show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you're able, we would be thrilled to have you join the flock by going to ourhenhouse.org slash donate and signing up for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you are welcome to make any size donation that feels comfortable to you. You can also support us by leaving a glowing review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Like us on Facebook, where you can also leave a fabulous review, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. Join our online community at ourhenhouse.mn.co and spread the word about the podcast to friends and family. The Mighty Networks platform, which again is at ourhenhouse.mn.co, is available to everyone, regardless of whether or not you're a flock member, though we do have a lot of robust information behind the paywall of the flock section. So do consider that when you're considering joining the flock. And if you already support us, thank you so much. Remember, if you become a flock member, you also get bonus content each week, an opportunity to have a one-on-one session with me, Jasmine. And you also get access to that aforementioned fabulous flock bonus area of Mighty Networks. If you donate $250 or more, we'll also send you a pretty fantastic our henhouse brass pin. So thank you so much to those of you who support us. Thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music. Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing the podcast, to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our logo and other graphics. I'm Jasmine Singer, and I'll talk to you next week. 